The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Welcome again to Morgan Hill Bible Church. Welcome kids who are in the room. Great to have you here. I love Family Ministry Month. As a reminder to parents, I told one or two outside, but if you're a parent and have a kid in here, remember, not only was I a youth pastor for 13 years, but I'm a parent to a three-year-old and a nine, almost 10-month-old myself, so nothing your kid will do will throw me off. So the sounds of kids squirming and making noise, that is a beautiful sound of worship to the Lord. Amen? Amen. And we, having kids in our church is an excellent thing, and it's much better than the alternative. So you are welcome. We're glad to have your kids here this morning joining us for those who, who stayed and will be with us today and for the next several weeks. Um, we're, we're in our series looking foretold, these, these stories looking ahead and signs of how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And today we're going to kind of start to turn a little bit. The first three weeks we've been looking at different ones. In the next three, four weeks, actually, we're going to start to focus on a specific week of Jesus's life. Did you know that in the Gospels, which are those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which cover the story of Jesus, they're not biographies as you or I would typically write a biography, right? The the point of them isn't just, hey, this is all of Jesus's story, but they're written with a specific focus and intent in mind, which is why in those four books, nearly one third of the book is given to the last week of Jesus's life. Do you know, in the Gospels, a third of the entire story is one week's span from the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to his death and then his resurrection. All that week takes up a third of the Gospels. And so because of that and the significance, obviously, that event has on our lives and in all of history, so much of the Old Testament points to and prophesies of the events that will take place that week. And that's where we're going to begin this morning, look at the, looking at the first event of that week in a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet. He's actually, I think it's the second to last book. It is. It's right near the end of the Old Testament, if you wanted to turn there in your Bible. Um, We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning. Just a few verses for us. Zechariah writes in late in Israel's history. If you know anything about the the timeline of scripture, this is after Israel had rebelled against God for generations, was taken, sent into exile. This is now that they've come home. Zechariah is one of those first prophets who goes with the people back in. And, And Zechariah's name himself means God remembered. God remembered his people. And so much of Zechariah's message is how God remembers Israel. God remembers his promises and God remembers what he will do. And this prophecy looks forward to what God will do through this king he's going to send, who's unlike the kings that they've had around them that have been in failure, but this king who will come as Messiah. And our text this morning, Zechariah 9, it's just two verses starting in verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." 
These two short verses give us three truths as to who the Messiah will be that we're going to explore and see how Jesus fulfills these in the New Testament. And this first truth of this scripture pointing forward to who Jesus will be is that Jesus is the righteous one. That Jesus is the righteous one. And this announcement of this coming king that Israel will have that will enter into Jerusalem, the first description of him is that he is righteous and having salvation. Righteous and having salvation. Righteous refers to this person's moral character, their total sinlessness and perfection. So you and I remember remember the slang, I don't know if some of us are old enough to remember when righteous used to be like a description when something was cool. Remember that? That's righteous. You know, that's, we're all dating ourselves. Good thing the high schoolers are over there, so they're not like, Mom, Dad, what are you talking about, right? Like, like they used to be a slang word for cool. Righteous means much more than that. See, sometimes we think of, oh, Jesus is a good person. Like, he, he's better than me. Jesus is a good person. Well, in some senses, yes, but in many senses, no. Jesus is not just you better. Jesus is totally perfect. He lived a perfect and righteous life. And this is looking forward to this one who will come as a human and live a perfect, a sinless life in every single way. I hate to break it to you this morning, but no one here is perfect. No one's perfect. I know what you're thinking. You're like, not even you? Yes, not even me. Come spend three minutes in my house. You will see that very quickly, right? That yes, not even pastors are perfect. None of us are righteous. This theme of this Messiah, the one to come, who ultimately is Jesus, being righteous is a significant theme throughout the Old Testament, anticipation to who this one will be. Jeremiah picks this up in Jeremiah 23, another prophecy of the Messiah. It says this in Jeremiah 23, verses five and six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The same prophecy almost verbatim is given 10 chapters later in Jeremiah 33 verses 14 to 16. It's picked up throughout the Psalms as they, they, they worship this one who is to come, that he'll be sinless and that he will be righteous. And ultimately we find its fulfillment in Jesus's life. And the Bible has many ways that it talks about. It talks about how Jesus lived in total obedience to the Father. One of the clearest passages reflecting back on Jesus's life is, is by Peter, one of his disciples, looking at Jesus, who said this in 1 Peter 2, verses 22, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We're going to look in a few weeks. That's actually another prophecy of the Old Testament that that. Peter is applying to Jesus's life. But this idea that Jesus came as the perfect, the righteous, the sinless king to rule and to reign over us. See, in in the Bible and in our passage specifically, righteousness is then also tied to another concept. Did you see it there in verse nine? Righteous and having salvation is he. And there's a reason that those two things are tied together because only the one who is righteous is the one who could bring salvation to the people. Only a righteous one could bring salvation. See, Jesus does not just qualify as our savior because he's willing, but because he is righteous, he is uniquely qualified to be the one who can save people from their sins because he is the only one who is righteous. 
It reminds me of that classic Disney movie from many, many years ago, Cinderella. Cinderella, I have, I have two little girls, so they're starting to get into princess movies. So I'm sure this one's just coming and it can't take Frozen's place soon enough. Like, please, let's get to Cinderella, honey. Let's get on from the next thing, all right? The, 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 the classic movie, we all know the story of Cinderella, right? Here's this orphan girl, right, raised by her stepmom with those two stepsisters. The fairy godmother shows up. She goes to the ball, dances with the prince, right? But at midnight, she has to leave. And so she runs off to escape right before the clock strike midnight. The princess is smitten in love. He wants to know who this is. But all he has left is this what? Glass slipper, So what does he do? He sends his officials and they go around all of the land, finding the one who will fit this glass slipper. And if you remember the comedy of the story, it's not that other women didn't want to fit into this glass slipper. Remember that classic, the the scene of where where Cinderella's stepsisters are trying to like jam their foot in and like, it fits perfect, right? As it's like wedging in there, trying to get it in. And ultimately, right, the story ends when Cinderella is discovered and her foot fits perfectly into this glass slipper. See, other people wanted to be the one. They wanted the shoe to fit, but Cinderella was the only one qualified because it was uniquely her foot that would fit in. Jesus is not our savior because he's the only one who wants to be. Maybe you are like, oh, I'll I'll be our savior. I'll do that. But you're, you're not qualified. Your foot doesn't fit. You're not righteous. Only one who is righteous, who is sinless and perfect, is qualified to be our savior. And why why is that? It's because our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God. And so something is needed, a righteous sacrifice to bridge that gap between you and me and our imperfections that we have in this enormous gap between us and God. And there's this incredible thing that happens because Jesus was righteous lived a perfect life, died for you and for me. Here's this amazing thing. When you and I believe in Jesus for salvation, that righteous perfection of Jesus is now credited to you. His righteousness, his perfection is now given and granted to you only because you have faith and believe in him. Second Corinthians puts it this way in Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the miracle of the cross. That on the cross, Jesus took upon our sin, all of your unrighteousness, all of your wrongdoing was placed on Jesus on the cross. And in return, he gave something back to you and to me through faith. And that is his perfect righteousness is credited now to our account. This is why Jesus is the only one who can save. This is why it's so important that this Messiah, one to come, is not just a good person, but a righteous, a perfect, spotless son of God. This is why, through your own human efforts, you could never do enough to save yourself. You could try all you want, and your intentions could be pure and good to try and achieve salvation through your own doing and your own working, but you could never do enough because perfection is required, and you and I are far from perfect when we're honest with ourselves. But it also can be a source of great hope as well, because when we get down to that question, will God reject me? 
Well, what happens if I stumble into some sin? What happens if I, if I, if I commit something in my life? Will God reject me? Will I do something that will make God so angry with me that he will reject me? This truth reminds us that when we believe in faith and what Jesus has done for you, when God looks down at you, he does not see your sin any longer. He sees Jesus's righteousness in your life. And so when God looks at you, he's not thinking, what a filthy, rotten sinner. He's thinking, my son died for that person and all I see is Jesus' righteousness. He, he doesn't judge you based on your sin any longer through faith. He judges you based on Jesus' perfection. And that's the glory of the cross is that Jesus took our sin and in response, we get his righteousness. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, my prayer is today you would do that to stop, to stop realize or start to realize you could never do it your own to stop trying but to realize that a righteous one came, a perfect one came, and salvation is found only in him. This first truth is that Jesus is the righteous one. The second truth that we see in this passage is that Jesus is a humble servant. That Jesus has come as a humble servant. The next, the concluding lines to verse nine say, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. Now, this passage, which we'll dive into, is speaking of Jesus' humility, and it's also pointing forward to an event that will occur in the New Testament that Jesus specifically fulfills that will point to his humility in nature as the Messiah. And this is the event that we call the triumphal entry. The beginning of Holy Week, when on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to read from Matthew. It's the longest one. John also directly quotes Zechariah as a fulfillment of this. But Matthew 21 says this. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went And did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus fulfills this passage of the coming king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, saying this Zechariah is specifically referring to me. This idea of the king entering into Jerusalem on a donkey is actually alluded to other places in the Old Testament. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his son Judah, ultimately from the line of Christ will come from Judah, he talks about the scepter, the ruling, the kingship will never depart. And then ultimately he refers also to a donkey and a colt as well. It's hinting forward. These pictures are foreshadowing and foretelling. See, Jesus embodies humility by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey because, let's put it this way, it's not the showiest of entrances that he could have had. 
The crowd responds in worship, but, but it's not what you would have maybe expected of a conquering and ruling king to enter into a place. That would have been to ride on something more extravagant, especially in their time, a chariot or a horse. See, we get that, that humility would be tied up to this. Over, I think it was a little over 10 years ago, there was um, a NATO summit that was held in the city of Chicago. And it was significant because it was the first one, I believe, that was held in the U.S. outside of D.C. And it was a great, it was in, I think it was in late May. It was a great time for rulers. I think there was like 60 nations from all over the world traveled to Chicago and the rulers that kind of met downtown. Of course, that was back when President Obama was president. Chicago was his hometown. So it's like, hey, I want to have people to my home. It's a great time. It was great for everyone except for the 3 million residents of Chicago, of which I was one at the time. Because here's the thing, what happens when 60 different presidents and prime ministers from around the world, the most powerful countries in the world, all gather in one place? Let's put it this way, traffic is bad. It's really bad. So here's what they did. The, the main airport in Chicago, O'Hare, was about 15, 16 miles northwest of downtown Chicago. And they had police cars at every single on-ramp to the highway that way, the moment a dignitary was picked up, got in his escort, right, all the big black SUVs with the tinted windows and was ready to drive down, do they get to sit in traffic? They don't sit in traffic. The police would go and they would block every entrance. And so these dignitaries would have clear highway space to drive all the way down into the main downtown area where they were staying. My house was located exactly halfway between the airport and downtown. I could see the police cars drive all day long, just parked right there so at any time they could block the entrance so that they could have their nice escort. Now that's, but but we get that, right? They're important people. They're big deals, right? Obama doesn't fly, you know, economy like you or I do, right? He gets his escorts. He gets to go places. Now I could just imagine if what, what would have happened if one of those rulers, one of those presidents or prime ministers, that she would have showed up and said, you know what? You got all this security for me. You know what I actually want to do? I want to take public transportation, right? Imagine what it would have been like, right? In this area, it's the BART or whatever we call it down here in San Jose area, right? Imagine if instead of this police escort shutting down the highways, like I just want to get on the train and hang out with the common folk. That's kind of what Jesus is doing in this. He's like, don't, don't treat me as special. I'm nothing, don't, don't treat me as extravagant or like this. Just I'm, I'm gonna ride in on a donkey. That's the message that this conveys. And this is the whole message of, of Jesus' ministry and life is that he has not come to be some extravagant ruling king, but he's come as a humble servant. That he came to be humble and he challenges us as his followers to model this type of humility as well. Perhaps the most astonishing passage about Jesus's humility is in the book of Philippians. We just went through this book not too long ago as a church, but, but let's read in Philippians chapter two, starting at verse three, it says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, as followers of Jesus, we serve a humble servant. And we are called to be humble just like him. 
There's not a lot of places in the Bible. There certainly are others. Love is another one, certainly, that the Bible says over and over. But there's not a lot of things in the Bible where it's like, hey, Jesus was like this. You too should be like this, right? But it's, hey, Jesus was humble. That's how you as his followers should act as well. Jesus didn't think of himself but thought of others. That's how you too should act yourself. And this is so, so hard for every single one of us. Because pride is the natural bent of every human heart. Pride is the unconscious sin that is motivated and underneath all of our lives and all of our actions. And as I was reflecting on pride and humility this week, I, I thought of someone in particular that as I've gotten to know them and, and think about them more and more over the last few years, I've seen pride come through over and over again in their life. It's me. Some of you thought, like, he's about to put someone on blast at church. No, no, no. It's me. Just stop and think through your own life. See, pride is such a dangerous thing because it doesn't present itself up front for others to see. It's the, I call it an unconscious sin, meaning this, it's always underneath and it flares up at times. And we'll think to ourselves, where did that come from? Well, it came from the pride that's always there in your heart. Right? Why was I having a good day driving down and then someone cut me off? Why did I start to scream in my car at them like they can hear me or something? Like, where was it? Well, that's, that's underneath. You, you think the world revolves around you, and that's, that's underneath here in your heart. Why were you having a sweet old day and then your spouse or your kid says something to you and you flew off the handle at them? No, you would never do that. That's just me. None of us do that, right? Where did that come from? Well, that's the pride that's underneath all of our hearts that it's always there and we see it flare up from time to time. We think, where did that come from? Well, it's always there. See, pride is the natural bent of every human heart, which is why practicing humility is so difficult for us. But where do we need to model this Christ-like behavior right now in our lives? Where do you need to lean into humility, not thinking of yourselves, but focusing on serving one another? See, Jesus went to the cross because he wasn't thinking of himself. It cost him his life, but he humbled himself. Why? Because he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. The scripture says he was thinking of the joy set before him. He was thinking of you and me, and that's why he went to the cross. He wasn't thinking of himself. Who do you need to get your mind off of yourself and focused on this week? Who do you need to serve? Maybe you need to serve someone in your family that you, maybe you haven't presented a bad attitude, but you recognize, hey, pride has gotten in our relationship here. Maybe it's in a situation at work that you need to stop being prideful for and and thinking, I deserve this. You need to work for me. You serve me. They have to treat me this way. But what if you flipped it and started actually focusing on how you could humbly serve the people around you? Where do you need to lean into this humility that our Savior models for us? Jesus is our humble servant. The third truth that we see here is that Jesus is our peacemaker. Jesus is our peacemaker. In verse 10, it says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Ephraim is in the north, Jerusalem's in the south, who's kind of saying, from all of Israel, I will cut off, and he lists, these are the main weapons of war, right? I will, I will cut off the chariot, 
and, and the war horse and the battle bow. This is kind of like someone, if the Messiah were to come today, saying, I'm going to remove the tanks, the aircraft carriers, the fighter jets, these weapons of war that you depend on. I'm going to take away, but what am I bringing instead? I'm bringing peace instead as well. So this idea of Jesus being the one, the Messiah, bringing peace is actually hinted at as well when Jesus rides in on a donkey. We see this entrance one other time in the Old Testament when Solomon actually enters into Jerusalem as king. It's a peaceful transition of power in 1 Kings 1, and he rides in on a donkey because it's a sign that he comes not to wage war, but to comes to bring peace. And Jesus comes, rides into Jerusalem because he is the one who comes to bring peace. This peace, though, that wouldn't be brought through military victory. Jesus doesn't march on Jerusalem with a gathered army of chariots and horses and armed soldiers, but he enters in humbly on a donkey, bringing peace. This contrast is seen throughout Scripture, depending on horses and chariots versus depending on God. Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus is saying, I'm trusting in God to bring peace, not in the human methods of war. He comes, he says, to bring peace, not just for a few people or for the nation of Israel, but who? But for all. It says, his rule shall be from sea to sea. No, this is not a reference to America the beautiful, from sea to shining sea. Sorry, the Bible wasn't written about America. But, it, but it's a description of the whole earth. Psalm 72, 8 says this, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's their description of the whole earth will be covered in God's peace that he's come to bring peace for all. And we see Jesus is the one through his death on the cross and his resurrection comes to bring peace for you and for me, not through weapons of war, but through the sacrifice of his life for us. Ephesians 2 says this, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus is anticipated as the one who will bring peace, promised that he literally is our peace. So what does peace with God look like? What is Jesus promising here that that he comes and fulfills? The first thing, the first peace that Jesus brings is he brings us peace with God. He brings us peace with God. As Romans 5 says that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That this enmity, the broken relationship that existed because of our sin between you and God and the just punishment that our sin deserves can now be switched around because of what Jesus has done for us. See, peace as a biblical concept isn't just the fact that people aren't mad at each other, but it's a word for relational wholeness and well-being. When it says you have peace with God, it doesn't just mean that God's not ticked off at you anymore. It means that your relationship with God is now as it was always intended to be that there's wholeness, there's healing, that it is well between you and God. And Jesus, through what he came to do for us, comes so that we might have peace with God. This expression of the peace that Jesus brings is also now peace that's to be experienced with others. It's a relational peace that goes out. We experience peace with God, but if we've experienced that, the Bible's clear, then the peace should go out and describe our relationships with one another. That's actually the context of Ephesians 2, where it's talking about Jesus being our peace. 
And so often in the New Testament, it comes to, it has this idea of Jesus breaking down these divisions that every, the world would set up. Of the main three divisions in their time, the Bible specifically talks about Jesus comes to bring peace and to break these things down. In their time, there were three kind of major divisions of how their world worked, social, cultural divisions. First was between male and female. They lived in a culture that if you were a male, you had so many more rights than if you were a female. And and Christianity is revolutionary in this, in its dignity and profound equality of women before God. It was the first major world religion to say, no, 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 no. It's not men like this and women down here. All are made in the image of God. And in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female. There's not any distinction. There's not any value difference between man and woman, but all matter to God. The other, the, the next kind of idea of peace that this passage in Ephesians is specifically addressing is the gap was between Jew and Gentile. These are what you would call racial or, or or ethnic divides of the time. It wasn't so much cult color as we often think of them now, but back then it was either you were Jew by birth or you were Gentile by birth. And those things were, your whole life was revolved around that. There were rights, there were privileges, and there was rejections of things based on your families that you were born into. Jesus comes in and says, no, I've come to bring peace. That those divisions that the world would set up, that you say, this describes how I live, those have no bearing in the body of Christ. That's why racism isn't just a matter of your upbringing or cultural preference. Racism is a sin before a holy God. Racism is a rejection of what Jesus has done on the cross. That there is no distinction, but all are now one and united in Jesus. Yes, we have cultural differences based on our backgrounds and our families, but there's no distinction in substance. All are loved and there's peace because of what God has done for us. The last distinction that the Bible talks about is that in Jesus, there's neither slave nor free, that the world was built on this class structure. You're either a slave, which was a huge predominant thing in their time, or you were a free person. And one of the revolutionary things of Christianity is how it exalted the worth of those who are marginalized in their society. The downcast, sometimes we wonder, why why doesn't the Bible specifically address slavery in more specific ways? The Bible was shocking in their times that it addressed slaves as full value believers in Jesus Christ. Not, hey, free people do this, slaves, I'm not gonna address you. But it assumed, hey, slaves have been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ and their life and their worth is of equal value and dignity as those of you who are free. It was revolutionary in its time. Now, if the Bible were written today, there'd probably be different markers in there, right? If it were written to us, there'd be different things in there. What divisions are there in our world that we would artificially put in or that our culture tells us to put in to delineate us, that we're not like these people, we should have nothing to do with these people. That has no place in the body of Christ. Political divisions, class divisions, any divisions that you would like that you were raised with or that culture would push down on us, those have no place in the body of Christ because what Jesus has done is to first bring us peace with God, but secondly, to bring us peace with others. The last peace that we can have is that you can come at peace with yourself. That Jesus comes to bring peace within your own soul. The greatest conflict sometimes that some of us experience is the conflict within our own hearts. The fear, the worry, the pressure to perform, the pressure to be good enough, that we can release that at the foot of the cross and find peace within our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. This is the Messiah that was promised who rode into Jerusalem, 
and just a few days later would offer his life for you and for me. The righteous one who committed no sin, who humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and dying on the cross for you and for me. And because of what he's done, you and I can have peace with God for eternity. Jesus, we do thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. God, that you did not come as a king just to conquer and to rule, but you came in humility. God, and you came to serve. Would we embody and practice that in our lives as well? God, I pray that if we aren't living into this peace that you've provided, not just peace with God, but peace with others as well. God, that you would root out those things in our hearts, that we would see those areas that we're holding on to that aren't pleasing to you and that we would surrender them with open hands to what you would have for us. God, we thank you that you came as the righteous one, that you were the only one qualified to save, so you are the one worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. We worship you today and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.